HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are on the line today with Alice Hill of Beaver Creek Ranch. Welcome to the show, Alice. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about agritourism. Now, your farm is located out in northwestern Kansas. You guys are a small family farm, and I heard your, your grandchildren represent the seventh generation of folks who have been farming the land. Is that correct? Well, yes, um, they are. We are not on the original farm, but they uh, represent seven generations living in Rollins County. So, yes, it, it is something of significance these days. Definitely. So how about, how did you enter into the farm, by birth or by marriage? Well, I um, spent my summers in Atwood with my grandmother. She's my, my mother's mother. Um, I was actually a military brat, um, born in Paris, France, spent time in Virginia, time in Florida. But every summer we would spend our, our wonderful days with our grandmother in Atwood she was not a farmer herself, but she had married into a farm family. And so even though no one was currently farming, I always had that sense of a farming heritage. Um, I ended up going to high school in Atwood and meeting my, uh, my future husband, and we became farmers in 1975 together and have been farming ever since. So how did you start farming? What were you producing? We were a general um, purpose farm. Originally, we had a cattle herd, um, a cow-calf operation. We had um, hard red winter wheat. We grew feed for our livestock, um, had pigs. We had chickens. I had a milk cow, pretty much trying to do everything that was possible on the farm. 
Sounds ambitious. Now, is that was that typical of farms in the area that people had kind of all those different types of functions on the farm, or were you guys an anomaly? Well, at that time, we were still kind of out of the ordinary. Uh, it was already transitioning into more of the monoculture that we see today. Uh, it was in the transition stages, though. Many of the older farmers were still um, producing pretty much a little bit of everything. But as a farm family sold out and would auction off all of their small animal equipment, uh, the neighbors would buy up the farm. It would become essentially either grain production or cattle production. And that has become the trend over the last 30 years. So, so what we're doing now, we, we were able to return to that lifestyle of having all of the different facets of a small farm. We are very unusual in, our, in the area. And can you tell us a little bit more for folks who aren't familiar with that part of Kansas, you know, just a sense of kind of what the, the climate is like and, and what the land is like? It is a harsh climate. Um, we are considered semi-arid in a normal, and I use that word very loosely, in a normal year we have around 18 inches of rainfall. Um, our growing season is essentially from, oh, about mid-May is our last frost date until October 10th, and that's our first frost date. So it's a fairly short growing season, very, very dry climate, lots of wind, um, hailstorms. We're not, we're not in the um, extreme tornado area that eastern Kansas is because we don't have the high humidity that generates the tornado outbreaks, but we certainly have, have tornadoes, blizzards, uh, pretty much all of the extremes. 113-degree um, heat in the summer, and, oh, we can be 15 below zero with 30 below wind chills in the winter. But, yeah, you've got to be kind of tough to, to survive out here. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Well, I, and that on that note, I mean, I feel like when people think of agritourism, they often think of uh, apple orchards and, and pumpkin patches, but that is not the direction you guys went. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what was happening at the farm that led to the decision to um, kind of open the ranch and a little bit about the services that you guys are now offering? Sure. Sure. We, uh, we came to the place we are now in 1986. We had lost our first farm through the farm crisis of the, of the early 80s, um, went through bankruptcy, had to just essentially start completely over. Um, but we were able to start again on this small property, um, both of us working full-time in town. I became a registered nurse. Um, some of the farm crisis events helped me, actually, in that respect. Um, there was money for displaced farm workers. There was uh, grant money for nursing, health care fields. So regardless, we were both doing everything we could to get back on the land. So we bought this place in 86, um, had two little daughters at that time, working full-time in town, back and forth, um, you know, only home basically at night and yet we were still trying to farm. Um, little by little, though, we began to realize that we might have something already in place that we weren't utilizing. People would stop in, and they would say, oh, can we hunt a deer on your place? Because where we live is right along the Beaver Creek. There's woods. We have 
white-tailed deer, we have turkey, we have pheasants, we have um, mule deer. It's just a really beautiful area for wildlife. And so we'd say, sure, yeah, go ahead and hunt. And then when they would leave, they would sometimes they would leave us a check for $50 or they would give us a, a, a ham, something along those lines. And after a few of those visits, we looked at each other and said, you know, we might have something we can utilize. And at about the same time we were considering that, the, the state of Kansas began to promote hunting lodges. Um, a little bit of background on pheasant hunting in Kansas. In the 50s, Kansas was considered the pheasant capital of the nation. There were people who would, who would spend you know, many weeks out here hunting pheasants. Farming practices changed over the time, and because of those farming practice changes, the habitat declined and the bird numbers declined, and there were no more um, big hunts coming out. So the, the Department of Wildlife and Tourism recognized that we needed to promote um, hunting lodges and regain that um, niche of outside um, income. And so we attended a, a seminar about hunting lodges, and we thought, you know, we could probably do this. So we started in 99, um, very, very slowly. We're, we were both working full-time in town. We were still farming on the side. And we had, I think, three groups the first year. We, uh, we started out with just building a website because that was how people found anything these days. And we, we had a nice website designer who was a local um, that got us on the map. The first year, three groups. The next year, we had about seven groups. The year after that, it just kept expanding. And three years ago, we were both able to give up our town jobs and just focus entirely on the hunting lodge business and our, and our farming operation. That's awesome. Congratulations. Well, it, it, was a, it was a big plunge for us to give up those steady paychecks, both of us at the same time. But we had reached that tipping point where um, we basically had been just doing the hunting on weekends and holidays, and sometimes we used our vacation time and would run a hunt. And we realized in order to make this thing really, truly work, we had to relinquish those town jobs and, and really take that plunge. But it, it has worked. Um, we, we've had a wonderful time, and it's truthfully saved our farm. Um, we've had two sets of droughts since this um, hunting operation began, and yet that, that outside income kept us going. So what type of hunting happens on your farm? We primarily are upland game bird, which includes pheasant and quail. We also do fall and spring turkey hunts and an occasional deer hunt. We have limited that. Um, there was an outbreak of a disease within the deer population called chronic wasting disease, and it decimated the deer numbers. It was just, it's just one of those cycles that occurs. So we've, we've cut back on any deer hunts for the last three years, but the, the numbers are starting to build back up. But pheasant is our bread and butter. Um, what we do, a typical hunt package looks like this. A group of gentlemen, typically, although we do host a few women, a group of gentlemen who are either, a lot of times it's a family, the grandfather, the grown son, and the grandson. Or it might be a businessman with two 
two or three of his best clients. And they will arrive in the afternoon, late afternoon, get settled in, eat supper with us. The next morning they get up, have a big breakfast, and head out into the field. And we provide, it's a full-service package. We have all of the hunting dogs. We do the bird cleaning, the guiding, the, the whole works. Then they come in for lunch, have a great lunch, rest for a little while, and if they haven't gotten their bird limit, then they go back out for the afternoon. Um, if they've gotten their limit, if they're good hunters and, and get a, you know all the shots that they want to make, then they do other things to recreate in the afternoon. So for folks who haven't been bird hunting before um, and, and who haven't been on kind of one of these more orchestrated hunts, is it, you know, that you kind of have a, a giant fence around your property and people stay within it? Or how do you know that there's going to be enough animals there that the hunters are going to find success? And you can talk a little bit about kind of operationally um, what that experience is like for someone who's maybe never approached bird hunting and then also how you act as managers of that actual kind of hunting process. Sure, those are some really good questions. Um, there are no fences out here. The birds fly as they wish. However, our farming practices, we, we are organic farmers. That, that helps a lot in the respect that there are insects in our fields. There are some weeds along the edges. Um, wild birds need insects and weeds. We leave um, food plots for them, so they have plenty of of things of grain to eat. We have um, permanent grass growing, so they have places to nest. We have taken advantage of every conservation program available to provide more habitat for the wild bird population, whereas our neighbors typically, unfortunately, are all farming with chemicals these days. They spray their fields, so there's it's barren, there's no weeds, there's no insects, there's no cover. And so if there's wild birds out there, they're going to be finding a nice habitat on our property. However, if they want to fly over to the neighbors, they can, they can fly wherever they want to. Um, we also um, have to, by law, because what we offer is an extended season, uh, the, the state season begins middle of November and ends at the end of January, we can hunt from the 1st of September until the end of March. However, we shorten that down to October through February just because of wheat planting and various other things. Um, but to, to have that extended season, we have to keep track of how many birds are harvested from our property by our hunters and we have to release an equal amount of birds. So we have a source of pen-raised pheasants. Um, they're just as wild as a wild pheasant. You, you, you can't catch one. You can't tell it apart from one that's raised in the wild. Um, but that gives us a sure source of birds that are always on our place. Um, we also don't shoot any hens. So the hens are the next year's um, breeding crop. Um, we love to hear the roosters crowing out in the fields in the morning because we know they're out there trying to find a mate and, and the natural cycle is occurring out there. 
Um, so so the, the hunters have lots of opportunity to shoot. There's more birds out there than they will ever uh, take, so we, we'll never run out of birds. Um, and then the habitat also improves the general wildlife population as well. We have an increased number of raptors. We have more jackrabbits. Um, we're hearing, oh, this is so exciting, we're hearing prairie chickens, um, which is something that has not happened here in many decades. So, so in the early mornings this time of the year, I'm hearing prairie chickens booming up in the pastures, and we don't shoot them. Um, they're, they are a game bird. They, they could be hunted, but we, we are so excited to have them here. We're, we don't have anybody hunting those. Well, that's so interesting. I feel like we often, um, when we're thinking about agriculture, don't really think about this connection between the, you know, the role that agriculture can play in supporting more broadly um, wildlife that surrounds the farm or, or lives on the farm. I, I know I was at a conference about a year ago, and there was all these folks from the Audubon Society there, and they're like, well, it's really important for us to preserve farmland because that's where birds hang out or when they're migrating they need these spaces to um to rest along the way can you talk a little bit about the 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 conservation um strategies that you've been able to take advantage and and what's really worked well for you on the farm yes of course the uh, one of the most important things that we've been able to be a part of is the uh, conservation reserve program which is a USDA program that's been in effect for quite a long time. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the ground that was planted back to grass, oh, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, is now being plowed back under because the price of grain went up and people wanted to put it back into grain and the contracts had ended. We, we have planted um, many varieties of species of native grasses. We've planted miles of um, cedar tree windbreaks, and the cedars here are actually a, more of a juniper. They're very drought tolerant. They're very bushy. They provide great cover for the birds during the winter blizzards. Um, after a blizzard, you'll, you'll go out and you'll see just all kinds of wildlife sheltering inside of those juniper bushes. Um, the other thing that has helped us is that we've worked closely with the um, uh, Pheasants Forever chapter and the uh, Quail uh, Quail Unlimited, I think is what they call themselves, to help promote habitat along the creek bottom. Um, we have lovely um, natural water on our creek, which out here is pretty rare. Um, in all the years we've been here, the, it's never gone completely dry. So that's a, a great draw for the for the wild birds, the songbirds, the the migratory um, waterfowl. We see blue herons and egrets occasionally. That's, that's a rare treat. Um, lots of owls. Um, just really a, a true wildlife haven out here. And what you said about um, preserving farmland is very critical. Um, those, those spaces are, are vital for all of our wildlife, regardless of whether they're, quote, hunting-type animals or just, you know, part of the whole important ecosystem that we have. Well, Alice, we are going to take just a, a brief break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other exciting stuff that you guys have going on at the farm. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Okay.
Today's music is by Taxstar on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. following is an actor reading an actual customer email from Heritage Foods USA. My family and I enjoyed the Heritage turkey. It was far superior to the regular mass-produced turkeys in terms of flavor and texture. Absolutely delicious and worth the difference in price. We will never go back to the regular turkeys. It made our holidays more enjoyable. Thank you, Heritage Foods USA. Heritage Foods USA hopes you had a great holiday season. For more specials on pork, beef, and other meats, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. All right, we are back. We're on the line with Alice Hill of Beaver Creek Ranch now. The ranch is in an interesting way, um, and the hunting program, the agritourism programs that you run, also are consumers for all the other products that you're producing on the farm. So I thought... Um, since we have a little bit of time, we might go through and share with folks some of the other things that you guys are, are working on. And um, I guess I want to start um, maybe with some of the livestock that you're working with, if you can tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Sure, sure. Um, not having to work in town freed me up to being able to do the things that I love the best, and that is raising animals and raising food. So little by little, I have been putting together this sort of composite package of everything we need out here. I have, and, and when along the, that line, I wanted to preserve some of the heritage breeds as well, not so much that I'm doing anything with big numbers, but um, we host almost 100 guests from all over the country, and when they're here, they get to take the whole tour and, and see the animals, and so they get exposed to some of these heritage breeds that otherwise they would have never heard of. For instance, um, I have red wattle pigs, which are amongst one of the rarer pigs, um, very few of them left. It, they are listed on the Slow Food Arc of Flavor as having some of the very best true uh, pork meat that that, uh, that a animal can provide. They're wonderful pigs. I just love them so much. They're easy to work with. They're friendly. They're curious. They've got a great sense of humor. Um, I have a litter of 10 piglets right now that are a little over a month old. I, just, I have a ball with them, watching them just play out in, the, in their paddocks. They are, they are raised outside, no confinement here at all. They have um, grazing little paddocks that they, that they enjoy, um, oats and rye and barley. Um, they get to benefit from the fresh milk and the eggs that are also produced here, I have a, a heritage breed Dutch belted milk cow, and they are considered again very rare. They have um, th- their coloration is very unique. They have um, a white belt around their centers. Some people see them and say, "Oh, I've seen those before," but but probably what people have seen are belted Galloways, which is a beef breed. But the dairy uh, Dutch belted is is again very rare. Then I have a Jersey milk cow that I'm milking currently, very rich milk, and the the piglets absolutely love the extra milk that they get from her. (laughs) uh, 
I have hens, so we have eggs. We have um, free-range chickens during the summer months, so we have chicken in the freezer. We have a small herd of Angus cattle, so we have all the beef we need. Um, our organic wheat is ground here at the farm, and I turn it into a variety of breads and, and cereals, and um, I did, uh, we use it for all kinds of things. Then uh, I have a high tunnel, which is a, a seasonal high tunnel. It's ex- also called a hoop house that allows me to extend my growing season. So during the summer, I spend every single day outside producing summer squash and onions and peppers and tomatoes and and the whole gamut of vegetables that I then preserve either through freezing or canning to be used during the winter months. And then last year, we were really, really excited to build a, it's a a non-traditional greenhouse, um, very energy-efficient greenhouse to house an aquaponics system, which is a combination of raising tilapia in tanks, and then um, there's other tanks that grow the fresh vegetables, the fresh salad, all through the winter, and and then through the summer I do other plants. So we are almost, not 100%, but we are very close to self-sufficient out here in our food areas. Well, and the other thing I thought was so interesting is you guys have been um, pretty innovative um, and have some dynamic stuff going on with the kind of back end of, of stuff. You're, you're working with the vermicompost, the black soldier fly program, and growing mealworms. Can you tell us a little bit about how those things work their way into your farm's operations? Sure. Well, uh, the, my idea is, is that everything is a full circle out here, and that's the way farms originally were. There was no waste. There was very little off-farm inputs. And so in every opportunity that I could, I tried to uh, let everything loop back around. The, the vermicompost system is a flow-through um, large red wiggler tank. Everything going in on top, down at the bottom, out comes finished compost that is used to enhance all of the gardens. Um, also, sometimes the chickens get some of the red wigglers, and I also grow fodder from the red wiggler compost during the winter months, just a very simple method, but that way the, the chickens are having fresh greens all winter plus a few red wigglers that get in there. They, they have a great time with those. And then uh, um, the black soldier flies, I, I have not had great success with yet, but each failure is another, you know, learning curve. I'm, I'm going to be starting up again now that the weather is moderating, They are a tropical or or southern insect. They're more geared towards Louisiana, Alabama, you know, those warmer states. And northwest Kansas is is asking them to to change their range considerably. And so I've made some modifications, but I haven't quite perfected that yet. But I'm not giving up on that. (laughs) And the the black soldier fly grubs will become um, food for both the chickens and the tilapia. The, the hope is that I will, will not have to purchase off-farm food inputs for any of my animals eventually. Everything can be fed to them directly from our own products. Everything they produce goes right back into the farm. So how did you learn to, to do all this stuff? 
Is it oh. all trial and error? Is it? I mean, where are you getting kind of the information and and the ideas from, like one thing to the next? I mean, we talked a little bit about the the hunting lodge, but it but it does seem like you're you know have your eyes trained towards uh, a dynamic resource, and I'm just curious for our listeners what that might be. I I guess I guess I would have to say I I'm one of those. Um, I don't know whether it's an illness or not, but I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> I think a lot, and I and I love learning new things. I love the whole the high, whole biodynamics that that are available to all of us. You don't have to live on a farm to be doing any of these things. You can you can manage uh, a portion of it no matter where you live. There's there's just so much out there that we have turned our backs on because we become so self reliant or not self reliant so non-reliant on, you know, the food truck coming in or the, the, the packages in the plastic sacks. And um, the more we can return to what we all used to do, the better off we are. And, and as far as where do I get the information, probably, I mean, the Internet is hugely a um, great source of information. I read constantly Mother Earth News, Organic Gardening Magazine, just all of them. I I, every new article stimulates me to try something else. <laughs> I know. Uh, my, hus- my husband gets a little uh, worried about me. <laughs> uh, we should all be so lucky. I, I was just saying this weekend, man, I wish I needed less sleep. I'm so envious of folks who can get by on, on not much sleep because I am definitely on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> well, well, count yourself lucky if you get the, enough sleep that's, that's important <laughs> um my other question just because i know people are going to ask do you ever host um you know interns or can people visit the farm to learn more about your work and some of the strategies that you've employed absolutely one of the one of the important parts of this aquaponics system is that it was partially funded through the north central region Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Grant. That's a big mouthful, but maybe some of your listeners are familiar with the SARE grant. Um, and so this is a demonstration farm, and my goal is to, to invite people to come. Um, they can look at my website. It's got some information on how to contact me and all of that. Um, it's fullcircleaquaponics.info. And I would love to. My, my, one of the, my greatest um, goals is to help to inspire other people, help them to see what's possible, and help them to replicate even a portion of what we're doing here so that it fits what their dreams are. Um, so, yes, I would love to have people come during the summer months, especially um, when we're not hosting hunting guests. Awesome. Well, Alice... Thank you uh, for taking some time out, with, uh, which I'm sure is like a busy, busy day. It sounds like they're all busy days for you. So I appreciate you <laughs> taking some time to share your story with our listeners. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for all you're doing for heritage food in, in every aspect. It's vital for us all. Excellent. So if folks want to learn more, that website again is fullcircleaquaponics.info. If you want to book a hunting trip, you can find them at www.beavercreekranch.org. This program, like all 35 of our live weekly shows, are available for free by visiting the Heritage Radio Network website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in our work, we hope you'll consider throwing a few bucks our way by clicking that Donate tab, maybe become a member and get that tote bag. 
You can also download our programs through iTunes and through Stitcher Smart Radio. However you do it, just keep listening, and thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.